The Business on RT Radio 1 with AIB. We know that your focus is on your business. That's why ours is on supporting you. But first, to the remarkable story of Nadia Adan, who arrived here as a child refugee with nothing but the clothes on her back. Two decades later, she owns Ashford Motors, a female-led dealership that specialises in mid- to high-end cars. Nadia, you're very welcome. You were born in Somalia. Yourself and your mom came here in the 1990s because of the war there. Yeah, so the journey really started in Somalia. So I grew up having a really good life. My mother actually ran her own business in Somalia. She had a cargo fleet company and she used to go to Russia and lease Antonovs and Cessnas. And she worked with the UN to bring in medical supplies into Mogadishu and other war zones at the time. So we had a really good life in Somalia. We had a big house, we had a big car, I had a driver. And then unfortunately when the war happened um, in the early 90s, the airspace was closed down and overnight we lost everything. My mum lost her business. And that war, I mean, many people would remember it here from coverage of it and Mogadishu. It was a particularly yeah. vicious war, wasn't yeah. it? Oh, it was so bad, Richard. And it, you know, displaced millions of Somalians. You know, we're talking about all over the world. Like, I think something, you know, like two million or three million went around the world. And it, it was just so bad. Like, we we lost my mom's family and it, it was a really, really awful time. And I suppose I was so young and it was just the pair of us. What age were you, Nadia? I, I was very young. I was probably about three. Yeah. Too young probably to have specific memories of it. Honestly, like I've no real memories of that time, but I know from talking to my mum, you know, the journey we went through to get to Ireland, which was a couple, of, it was a couple of year journey. It wasn't just like we left and came to Ireland. There was a couple of countries in beforehand. So where did you go en route yeah. before you got here? So I suppose the first thing was like when we lost everything and we knew we had to go, and we lost family. The one thing my mother had in her head was education and because in Africa, if you lose everything, you ca- it's very hard to build yourself back up again. You have to start from scratch. She just knew she wanted to get me to an English speaking country and somewhere that I would get a seriously good education. So we necessarily didn't know we were going to end up in Ireland, but she just had this you know, idea in her head. So at first, when we left, we went through Kenya, Ethiopia, Sudan. We went through by road, uh, land cruisers. And there was a lot of people leaving at the time. So it was you were trafficked almost through these places. And we spent a lot of time in these places like you know for example in Sudan we were in a refugee camp there for nearly a year really dire conditions and we left there and went through another country and another country until we went through the Sahara Desert we were there for about six weeks going through the Sahara Desert and at that time like it was so bad there was no food no water I was so young there was parents there giving their kids urine to drink which sounds terrible but when you're dehydrated in those conditions you're going to drink anything to stay alive Richard and I'm sure your mother has a lot of fairly rough memories of that period even if you were too young to yeah. be able to take it all in and then you you ended up in Norway yeah the UK well, and then yeah. Ireland came yeah, after that so yeah so when we left so but just to take you back a little bit so we we ended up after the Sahara, Sahara Desert ending up in Libya and when we got to Libya they were really quite bad there at the time with Somalis they didn't treat them quite well they, they put us in jail for a while and then we actually got in contact with an auntie of ours that was in America and we got money offer to then get traffickers to get on a boat to traffic us now we did get to a country after that but I to be honest with you I'm not sure where it was because speaking to mom again she was like no 
know that I don't think that you got the story right there. So she replenished my memory a little bit. As I said, I was very young, you know, to remember these things. So once we left Libya, um, we got on a boat and we had money. We got traffickers and on the boat, you know, it, it was it was terrible. You know, the boat nearly capsized at times, all these different things. It was just awful. And then we did get to a country and we got another trafficker. And yeah, we got fake passports and we got on a plane and ended up in, in Dublin on O'Connell Street, just the two of us with nothing, no one, no one. What was the first thing you did when you arrived in Dublin? So the first thing we did when we arrived on O'Connell Street, my mum asked, like, where do we go to ask asylum? And at the time, it was the Justice Department back then. And she told me, because I was only on the phone to her there the other day, saying, look, I'm coming in to Richard and, you know, can you replenish my memory a little bit? And she said, you know what, Nadia, when we got to Dublin, people were so nice to us. They actually gave her a hundred euro, a hundred pound. It was a pound note. It was only out for a couple of years, the hundred pound note at the time, because we got here in kind of 97. And she said people were giving her money in the street because we were just standing there and we didn't know where to go. And the Irish people were so nice. They were giving her money. And eventually we ended up going to the Justice Department. We asked for asylum. And then they put us into kind of what you would call it now, the equivalent of direct provision. But it was a totally different system back then because the Irish, they weren't used to having you know, refugees coming in. So we really got into the system so early and vetted and everything. And by three months we were out and mum was given a house and she could start working. And what did she what did she work at initially? Yeah, so she had three jobs, like lots of different jobs, but I always remember these kind of three, two, three jobs she had at the time. So one was packing boxes in a factory in Walkinstown and she used to walk every day from Fur House to Walkinstown. She'd leave me with the childminder on the road at 5am and I wouldn't see her again till that night. And then she was cleaning dishes at the weekend in the local pub, Scholars Pub in Fur House. And yeah, washing toilets, like anything she could do, she did it. Because like, if you think about it, my mum came from being really high class, you know, travelling around the world, Russia, African woman owning her own cargo air- airline business to starting again with nothing clean toilets. I don't know how she did it. And I always remember like my first uh, couple of weeks in my school, she want I wanted to make friends, and I you know found it quite tough. She rented out the whole of McDonald's for me for my eighth or ninth birthday, invited all my friends over from school, and I don't know how she did it. I really don't know how she actually afforded that. But she always seemed to find a way, she and she was money. very she, dedicated to work yeah. and making it happen. Yeah. How important then? You, you were living in Tala. Yeah. You were going to school in Tala. That's. Dublin is probably all of your memories because yeah. you wouldn't necessarily remember before that. Yeah. W- was your mum really determined that education was going to be it for you? Education was key to her. That's all I heard was education, education, education. And I think it, it was because she didn't have one and she was a businesswoman and she had lots of businesses and they failed and she had to start again. So she didn't want that for me. She wanted me to have something to fall back on. So she made sure that even though school was a bit difficult for me to get through, that I always had tutors in the summers if I ever repeated exams. She brought me through right through my degree up to my master's in Trinity. Was all of that a bit of a battleground between you? Yeah, it was. Absolutely, yeah. Because I think, you know, like she grew up in a different world and she has certain a certain culture and, you know, her ways. And I was growing up in Tala, <laughs> you know, running around. So how could we meet in the middle? And she just wanted me to study and that was it. Whereas I was having a bit of a life as well. And, you know, like any teenager, you know. Having a bit of crack. That's what that sounds Having like. Having a bit of crack in the fields. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and 
What about after school yeah. then and study? Did you want to go on? Obviously yeah. your mum wanted you to. Yes. Did you want to do all that? I didn't, like, for me, it just felt, everything just, it just felt difficult having to go to school, having to sit down, having to do homework. And I think some of that might be that, you know, I had a lot of, you know, mo- moving around when I was young. So I didn't necessarily have that discipline. And, you know, kids do need discipline. They need one parent or two parents to sit down with your kids after school and go through homework or do this, do that. I didn't have that for a long time. So I was always catching up. So obviously mom just thought I'd have that and she'd gone be gone to work. It wasn't her fault. She was earning money. But I wasn't going to sit down myself and learn how to be have discipline, you know. And I think that was tough. So I, I was always catching up. And you did go on to study yeah. and you studied finance. Yeah, finance and investment analysis and IT Tala. It was very heavily, you know, based on kind of like the derivative market, investment banking. So that was the route that mom kind of wanted me to go very like stable job and stuff like that and um, yeah she was she wanted to tell the family back home I was the CEO of, <laughs> of an Irish bank <laughs> well, You might be it's, it's early days that. and you did a Masters in Trinity yes. then Yes How did that go? You, you, yeah. Getting into Trinity wasn't yeah. exactly straightforward was it, it wasn't I don't think anything in my life straightforward to be honest with you but we get there in the end so after I finished my degree because I'd always wanted to just work and earn money you know and she'd never let me work like during the school year through my degree everybody else has jobs she wouldn't let me have a job because she said to me Natty if you taste money you're never going to go back to school and then after I finished I said great I can go out and work now mom and earn money and she says no 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 you're going to do your masters in Trinity because I know if you have that on your CV you will get the best job out there and I said mom I can't I can't do another year like I'll do it while I work and she says no you won't annoy you so she literally dragged me to the dean's office in Trinity which you can't do that you can't just rock up to the dean in Trinity you have to apply my grades wouldn't have been the best. I, I I sort of coasted through everything. And she knocked on the door and she says, this is my daughter. This is our story. I want her to come in. And to be fair to him, he sat down, he listened to us. And I think it was, I, I, I was just failing one, one class at the time. It was tax really badly because I hated anything to do with maths. And he says, right, if you can get 95% and above you can come in you'll you'll, you'll just make the grades in, in, like, in the tax exam in the tax exam so I had to repeat this tax exam and she made me have a tutor all summer long and I got like 98% in the exam so I got in but the, the the course the masters wasn't cheap it was about 22 grand and you know we didn't have the money but she found it she you know did whatever she could to, to get it. And you enjoyed Trinity? I loved it in the sense of like it opened up my eyes, you know, to the world and to all my peers that were from all over the world. We had Germans and Chinese students coming in. So it was a very elite kind of kind of course. And, you know, yeah, it did. I, I loved that side of it. The studying bit was a bit tough, but I got through it. The social side was good. So I love the social side. I love going out who doesn't? <laughs> on the piss. <laughs> and then who... Um, you had an opportunity to, to get a job in a yes. stockbroking firm. Yes. You, you, basically, there, there was a, a job was sort of advertised yeah. for someone the in the class. class. Yeah, it was so you, basically... you landed it. I landed it out of like, you know, 30 or 40 people that went for the job and these would have been geniuses, straight-laced A's, you know, and I was like hardly making it into my classes every week and it was like a four-round interview to present a stock, like why you wanted it, stuff like that and I got it out of the 30th and when I got the job, I asked the CFO, I said, why did you pick me? And he said, look, Nadia, anything you need to know for this job, you can learn from a book, you can learn from us, but what you actually have is cop on and he said, not a lot of people have it anymore. And he says, that, that's really important. So when I got in, 
I did absolutely love the job. I loved the nice side of it, the cushy side, the brand, learning about a company's brand and talking to other investors and talking to other analysts. But what I didn't like and I, it didn't agree with me as a person was just the math, math side to it and having to sit down and build models and stuff like that. I just, I was always, I wanted to go up and move around and meet people. And if there was a meeting in London, I'd put my hand up straight away and say, listen, I'll go to that investor meeting. I'll do this. I'll do that. Um, so yeah, it, it was me on my team. I was one of 18. They were all men except for our boss. She was a lady. But yeah, it was me and 18 guys in a and shark tank, basically, is what they called it. <laughs> At some point, <laughs> you decided, I, I've got the job now yeah, and I should have a car mm. that goes with it. Yeah, I need to have a fancy car to go with my fancy job while mom's telling everyone back in Africa I'm the CEO of, of this bank and I'm not. Uh, so yeah, so I took out my first loan like everybody does and I was surrounded by all these guys and they were traders and they're on such big money like hundreds of thousands a year and all they talk about is their cars and their you know, their Ferraris and Porsches and Range Rovers and I was like, I have to get a half decent car. I think I was driving a Corsa or something at the time. My mom had bought me my first car, you know. Don't worry I'm looking after her well now and uh, so basically I took a loan it was my first car a BMW 320 M Sport manual I'm right. very fresh at the time it was a lot of money loved it didn't know a huge amount of cars but it was great it was fast it looked well and then one day I decided to sell it myself because I think I didn't get a good deal off a dealer or something like that at the time and I sold it on my lunch break in Tesco across the road from work you know, and I made a few bob, and so I, you, you you sold it sold for more than you paid. Yeah, for more than I paid. Yeah, I made a profit. I won't tell you how much though. <laughs> <laughs> and and then you decided to. Well, yeah. if I've done that once, I can do that again. I so did it a couple of more times, just on the side, just as a hobby t type of thing. I bought another car, sold it, made a few more bob. And then at the same time, I was coming up to a point in my life in the job where I was really unhappy. I was in it for a couple of years and I was enjoying the bit of selling on the side. So you quit the fancy job. Quit the and fancy you job. buy and sell cars. Going to go buy and sell cars on the side of the road. And yeah. that's when <laughs> Ashford Motors came yes. about. Yes. And the thing about it, one of the distinctive things, well, one of them is that the kind of cars you sell, it's kind of boutique cars, mm. higher end, mm. mid 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 range, higher end cars. Well, look, that's only in, in the last while. When I started off, I was selling absolute bangers on the side of the road. You don't just like get build your portfolio and all of a sudden you're selling Bentleys and Astons, which I do now. But at the start, it was a lot of grinding at very cheap cars. And then what happened was I took a lease out on a yard and then the pandemic happened. And it was like shut down all around the country. And I was like, how the hell am I going to sell cars if people don't know I'm open, they don't know about me? So that was the moment I pivoted to social media and I started just doing TikTok videos and uh, Instagram videos about my cars and that we were opened and everything like that. And then I took a risk on a kind of an expensive car, which was a Bentley. It was a 08 Bentley Continental at the time. It was about 40 grand, which was a lot of money for me back then. And you need a brand to sell a car like that. Like no one's going to buy Bentley off some girl on the side of the road in Tesco's or whatever. Well, at this stage I had the yard. So I just kept building and building and building. And then I sold the Bentley on Instagram. A lady got onto me on Instagram and said, look, I'm interested in the car for her husband. She came down, sold the car and I went, hang on a second, there's something here, social media. Because if you think about it, it's traditionally male. It's traditionally on the side of the road. I was in a yard in an industrial estate and 
I had to find a way to be noticed. So social media and was you, that. You've definitely been noticed. You you have how many TikTok followers yeah. and Instagram? Yeah, so I have 180,000, nearly 180,000 followers on TikTok and my biggest video got 30 million views. And I actually did a 10 second video on a car. It was an 80 grand or eight. And I said, any guesses, guys, can you guess what the car is with the noise of the exhaust? It got 3 million views and I sold that or eight from that 10 second video. Now, that's crazy. In that world, is yeah. it harder to do all of that as a woman than if you were a man? No, the opposite, because the men love coming down to me and buying a nice car. <laughs> so you've you've used that to your advantage? Absolutely. And I'm really open about that. You and know. what about women? Do many women come along? I, by the I have an amazing and a growing base of women. And the women that come to me are very high powered women. Um, you know, they'd own their own businesses. They'd be CEOs because at the end of the day, a high powered woman who wants a good car just wants a good deal and wants to be looked after and make sure she's not going to get shafted. That's it. They don't care if they're buying it off somebody that wears low-cut tops. I can make do all the risky videos I want and mark how I want and do publicity stunts. As long as my business is good, I can do all of that because it creates views, it creates chat and at the end you of the day... You don't care if it's described as risky. You, you say yeah, risky videos. Yeah, absolutely. No, because at the end of the day, it's all it's all PR. If the business is solid, if everything is solid, the Google reviews, the cars are good, you know, if everything's above board, then I can market how I want. It's a bit like Ryanair. You can market how you want, but your business has to be good. If your business is crap, then people are going to tear you down straight away. So that's why at the beginning, a lot of people had emotions about the videos because they're not used to seeing, first of all, a lady come out of nowhere, running in her business hurt the way she wants where's the real book show it to me I don't know where the real book is and not only that that now I'm being recognised in the industry it's turned around now because people are like hang on a second it's just marketing at the end of the day I would have thought and this feeds into the idea of um, people selling cars uh, mm. car salespeople get a bit of a bad they do rap. We, we get it's, such a bad rap you're kind of like you know <laughs> I, I don't know. know if I trust you. It's, there's um, something underhand. I wouldn't going buy a secondhand on. car off him, kind of thing. Yeah. And and trust has to be a big factor. But if you're actually selling these yeah. expensive high end cars yeah. on the back of yeah. TikTok videos, yeah. how do they trust you and trust the car? Yeah. So I suppose you can't sell cars off TikTok videos and then expect people to think you're a good business. Like you have to do a lot of groundwork before that. So five star Google reviews. I'm SIMI. I'm part of the AA approved car dealer network. I had to, what a man would do once I have done five times. But my point is, yes, I've had to prove myself four or five times. And how important was yeah. it for you then to get that SIMI yeah. membership? Because yeah. that, that's, a, you know, Society. for dealerships, that's a sort of a... Yeah, it's, it's a badge of honour, really, you know. And it, it was so important. And I remember when I applied for it and I'd done all the groundwork, you know, I'd, I'd upgraded all the insurances. You know, you, you don't just get it. Your taxes have to be on board. You have to have the right public law insurance, everything, if the right place, they come down, they, they, they look at where you are, how you're trading, your Google reviews, how you look after customers, stuff like that. And I remember, right, at the time I was applying for it, I was getting the answer that day and somebody on TikTok commented on one of my videos saying, I've just come out of an SIMI meeting and there's talks about Nadia uh, being, a negative, being negative, bringing the good standing of the motor industry down. And I thought that was a true statement because I was waiting for the answer. And I bawled and bawled and I said, what am I doing? Like, I must be doing something wrong here. And then they called me later that evening to tell me I'd got it. And I was like, I can't believe I let that upset me. Like, it was a troll making something up. But I thought it was true. As someone who has spent virtually all your life mm. in, in Dublin and living here, but your 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 origin story from Somalia yeah. and, and that difficult journey with your mother in the early days, yeah. what do you make of the way... Mm. 
Ireland is changing mm-hmm. uh, and, and our attitudes and the tensions that are there now yeah. around immigration. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, someone coming from being an immigrant and asking for help and being welcomed with such open arms, like, as I said to you before, everything was so quick back then in the system. Now, you know, we, we're seeing refugees being kept for nearly 10 years sometimes. So I, I do understand both sides of, you know, of course, we want to help everyone. But I do also understand that, you know, it's a lot you know and is the infrastructure there and you, I can totally understand the tension that's happening and maybe they should be better systems in place to bring people in like us and also make sure there's enough doctors and schools and you know homes you know I totally understand all that so it, it's it's a very it's not a nice it's not a nice situation you know because I, I do totally see both sides um, and I definitely think that maybe systems need to be in place to kind of process people a little bit better quicker and make decisions So when you see protests and things yeah. like that outside uh, potential centres for asylum seekers or, or whatever um, how do you feel about those people protesting? I think that they're protesting at the wrong thing you know if like burning down a building is not going to it's going to actually upset the owner of that building and you don't know who they have to feed you know that that's doing nothing I suppose anything. some uh, protesters would say that in many cases they're just protesting mm. they're not the ones who are burning down the Though, building yeah exactly the ones protesting yeah absolutely I think they, they should be protesting to the government really and kind of saying listen you know we've no issue helping people and I know we all want to help people and that's fine and I was helped and Ireland welcomed me in but it's the way to do it it's how you're doing it how you're processing like making sure you're taking in enough that's going to be a, a good ratio with that area that there's enough doctors enough schools like that's all legible you know at the end of the day I totally see where people are coming from After a long hard road for your mother and yourself over those years she has set up her own business you have your own business Yeah how does she feel about that? Is she very proud? Is she? It's, it's not quite the CEO of the bank yet, yeah. but it's it's your own bank. I had to convince her that, like you know, I didn't leave my big top job to sell cars on the side of the road. I had to say, listen, stay with me. This was a good idea. I promise. You know, now she is. Now she sees the fruits of my labour. At the beginning, she went absolutely crazy, and she was just disgusted with me, to be honest with you. But now she sort of sees the fruits of the labour, and I suppose I became more like her than I ever thought I was, even though we fought a lot. You know, I became a bit like her, my own business lady. Um, but yeah, no, we're, we're, I suppose really with everything going on now, you know, we came in as immigrants. We pay our taxes. I pay my taxes. I employ staff, you know, and we, we can be, give back to the community. We can be a positive, but it has to be done in the, in the right way. Okay. Nadia Adan of Ashford Motors, thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Thank you so much, Richard.